Well, new community, we're, uh, like I said, glad to be here this morning. Let's, uh, let's jump right in. Last week, uh, if you were here, Russ uh, kind of gave us uh, a preliminary idea of how his talk would function in the morning, that it would be uh, much more applicable, that there would be maybe less information and more uh, points of application along the way, and boy, was he right. If you were here, there was about 35 different application points that he provided us. And so I thought maybe I would do something a bit different this morning. That uh, not following like we did last week, that I would actually, in my message this morning, I have no intention to give you any application points. All right? Zero application points this morning in the message. But I do intend to give you a series of questions along the way that my hope is will drive some reflection in your life, all right? So we're going to start with our first framing question this morning. We're going to look at this topic uh, kind of as if it's a coin and that there's two sides to a coin. And so this is the first part, the first side, and here is the framing question. What should contentment Look life look like in the life of a follower of Christ. What should contentment look like in the life of a follower of Christ? Now, being content, something that we uh, probably know, we've heard this phrase before. At its very basic level, is the acceptance of and satisfaction with the way things are. And it extends to all areas of life, but primarily this morning, I'm going to look at it at the level of the stuff that we have, the money we make, and the roles that we hold in our lives, all right? So maybe think about it this way. The things that we consume and the things that we produce, that's the level I want to look at it in this first part. Now, this will not come as a shock to you, but being satisfied with what you have and with who you are, I do not believe are highly valued concepts in our culture. The state of being satisfied, I do not believe is a philosophy in our culture that we place a lot of value in. And because the Western church lives within this culture where our free market and our capitalistic structures promote control and power and materialism and consumerism as core doctrines, we have to acknowledge, I believe, that we are constantly being pulled away from the biblical teachings of contentment. It's almost as if it's its own orbit, and in our dissatisfaction, we're pulled into this orbit that surrounds these things like power, control, materialism, consumerism. So in this way, I think the church, both as an institution, but then also as its collective individuals, you, me, I think we are often just as guilty of frantically striving for more, for new, for bigger, and for better. From a very early age, I believe we're kind of conditioned in this way, that our feelings of fulfillment, no matter how fleeting they may be, are connected with the stuff that we get and the money we have and the success we achieve. In fact, I can remember a Christmas when my oldest Theron, and I did ask him if I could tell this story, 
He was about five years old, and Legos had just kind of become the thing in our house. And I'll tell you, seven years later, Legos are still the thing in our house. But it was starting to become the primary gift that our boys wanted, and Theron has always been all about Legos from this age. Now, as good parents, we've tried to make Christmas a reasonable holiday in terms of gifts, but when you have aunts and uncles and grandparents and they all live in the same city, it's not easy, right? Parents, if you have kids, you know this. There was one particular set that Theron really wanted. I believe I have a picture of it up on the screen here. That, my friends, is the Scooby-Doo Haunted Mansion. This was the set that Theron had wanted, and probably starting in October or so, he had found this one, and it was just the subtle, like, hey, mom and dad, Scooby-Doo Haunted Mansion, come on now. This is what, this is what we're looking for. Get this into uh, Santa's ear. Let's make sure that this thing happens. And so we explained to Theron that because this set was a rather large set and pretty expensive, you often don't get all of the things you want. But there still was a lot of buildup in the weeks prior to Christmas. So when he didn't, in fact, get it, the few days before Christmas when we celebrated with my wife's family, he was a little bummed. But he was confident that as we celebrated Christmas on Christmas Day, that things would change. And so when Christmas morning arrived, he started by waking up and exclaiming how excited he was and how hopeful that he was that the Scooby-Doo Haunted Mansion would find its way under the tree that morning, only to find out that it was not under the tree on Christmas morning. But later in that day, we had Christmas with my family on our side, the Longmire side. So we show up to the Longmire family Christmas celebration, and the buildup was real in the car. The anticipation had almost become heavy. The family had finished all of the gift opening, and we were sitting around in this, like, looked like a war zone of presents and wrapping paper all there, and there was one final present under the Christmas tree. Gigi, who is grandma, said, oh, Darren, there's one more present for you. And you could just see the delight in his eyes. The gift was brought to him, and the shape was the exact shape of that box right there. And Theron sat down with this thing in his lap in elation, almost kind of like ceremonial reverence in how he was unwrapping this package. And he started to take the wrapping paper off, only to be surprised that it was a backpack that his mom and dad had mentioned that he needed earlier in the year. And with a clear wave of disappointment and tears welling up in his eyes, he looked right at Gigi and Papa and exclaimed, well, maybe next year. <laughs> when you tell a story like this about a five-year-old, six-year-old, it's actually really illustrative and super cute, right? But how often does your dissatisfaction as adults lead you to say, well, maybe next year? Needless to say, the individual practice of living out contentedness is not only countercultural in our world, but I think it's a rare find in our day and age. 
Now, this is not new to our world or unique in the time in which we live. Scripture speaks about the idea of contentedness in a lot of places. First Timothy, for example, says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Timothy speaks of it like a trap, which I think is this perfect word picture because nobody plans to get into a trap, right? You... You're unsuspectedly, unsuspectedly living your life just far too close to the edge of the trap, and then to your utter surprise, the snares take hold, and now you're stuck. Our foolish desires have created in us a false belief that our joy is made complete in the accumulation of stuff, that our value is connected to our success that our deepest, deepest longings will be satisfied if we can just gain a little bit more control, just a little bit more power. The life of contentment like Timothy speaks about requires not only a great deal of surrender, but also a great deal of trust. Trust in the providence and the sovereignty of God. It calls for maturity to understand that you that I don't need everything right now. That immediate gratification, although attainable in our current day, is not a healthy pursuit. I've wondered as I've kind of thought about this idea of contentment, if why this has become so difficult for us in our current world is not only due to our wealth and our position, but because of our access to information. I would argue that having a supercomputer in your pocket is one of the greatest deterrents to a life of contentment. At any moment, we can know anything that we want. And to think that that does not affect your underlying belief of your own importance or create a deep sense of entitlement in your spirit is absolutely crazy. All wonder, all mystery, all patience is gone because you have access to everything at any moment that you want it. And so with each Google search, our acknowledgement of our own limitedness is chipped away. Stand-up comedian Pete Holmes has a fantastic bit about this. If you uh, Google search Pete Holmes and uh, Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers, you'll find this clip, and it's a fantastic kind of prophetic comedy clip that speaks to this idea. But I actually had a situation, an instance in my own life that I experienced this. This was two weeks ago. We were driving, my family and I were driving past Connell, Washington, right down through Lind, which is where my dad grew up, Lind, Washington, the beautiful metropolis of Lind. So we're going through Connell, and there's that enormous 
prison in Connell. I think it's called a correction center, actually. And I looked at it and I said, man, I wonder how big that is. And then right away, led me into wondering the size, the capacity, what type of inmates, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, Grace, get out your, get out your uh, phone. Let's do some Google searching on this correction center. We knew we were kind of in this like limited range, spotty uh, cell phone reception, and so she pulls up the first page she can, and it's not the information that we're interested in. And then she tries to, and it's buffering, and it just doesn't work, and now we've lost reception. And there was this deep sadness in my heart because I could not know just how big the Coyote Ridge Correction Center was. That information I do not need to know. There is no reason in my life that I need to understand the capacity of that prison, of that correction center. And yet, because I couldn't have it in that moment, there was actually an unsettled sense or an unfinished sense in my life of, I can't wait till we can get back to cell phone reception so I can look that up. I had an inability to get what I thought I deserved in that moment. And it created an unsettled spirit in my life. And it was altogether useless information for what I need to know right now. The more that we seek to fill our homes with stuff that we ordered on Prime and our accounts with money and our minds with needless information and our bellies with the best food, the harder it becomes to find peace in Christ. Now, we all know that none of these things in of themselves are bad things. But with every thought toward them and with all of our energy spent toward their pursuit, it expands their gravitational pull towards our heart. And it becomes more and more challenging to find the peace of Christ. The daily practice of acceptance and satisfaction is a place the church should not only speak about, but where I believe the church and its people should look significantly different than the world around. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, in particular, our church will have to confront the vices of hubris, the worship of power, envy, and illusionism as the roots of all evil. It will have to speak of moderation, authenticity, trust, faithfulness, steadfastness, patience, discipline, humility, modesty, contentment. I think Bonhoeffer rightly calls the church to a set of values, contentment included, that can often be overlooked as unexciting or mundane, but when lived out by normal people, people that look like you, people that look like me, they can deeply impact the world around, and they will create a greater openness to the peace of Christ in our own lives. This, I believe, is a way that we can continue to live a hidden life with a posture of contentment through a greater intentionality with how we consume and how we produce. Up on the screen, there's going to be three questions. 
grab a phone, take a photo of these things if you want. But these are a couple of questions that I would encourage you, challenge you to think about this week, to process through, to give yourself some time for reflection, for introspection that might help you begin to wrestle with this topic of contentment and what it might look like in your life. Now, could be easy to stop here, right? And honestly, I'll say this just for myself, probably enough for me to wrestle with just this amount on the topic of contentment, for me to evaluate through these questions. This would give me plenty to do in the coming weeks. But there is another side to the coin. So we're going to start part two with this framing question. Is there ever a time that it's okay for Christians to be discontent? To answer this, I want to look at Zelophehad's daughters from the book of Numbers, Numbers 27. And I'll read this to you. There's a lot of names in here, which I'm going to do my best to get through. This is what the scripture says. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hephnar, son of Gilead, son of Mechar, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tiretzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer, the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers." Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give it his inheritance to his brother. And if he has no brothers inheritance to his father's brothers, and if he has no father and no brothers, you shall give the inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. Eleven verses in Numbers 27. This is an incredibly obscure story in an easily skipped book in the Old Testament. And yet it contains a profound social revolution. And I think an important movement for us to understand. Living in a culture of stifling patriarchy where women were more often seen and used as property, these five women stood before the greatest leader, the highest ranking religious figure, and amongst a council of male decision makers outside of a place so holy they could not even enter, all because they were no longer content. Their dissatisfaction with the injustices around them could no longer be quieted. They could no longer be overlooked. Now, in this time in the history of Israel, I think it's important to note Israel is still wandering around in the desert. 
There was no land to give them. So in reality, what these five sisters are really seeking is full participation in the future reality of Israel. Now, had the daughters attended and left after my first part of the message, on their drive home, they may have had a wonderful conversation about living faithfully and thankfully with what God had given them. The law was clear that all inheritance would be passed to the firstborn son, and if there was no son, then the next of kin that was male. The legal assumption of this time was that these women, these five sisters in our story, had no legal right to inherit land. This law being just one of the many things that had reduced women to a second-class citizenry. This was their world. This was not new or surprising to them. So they very possibly could have listened to the first part of the message and been convicted that contentment for them was the process of finding good in what they had had. Not to reach for more, but to be settled, to trust that God had them where they were at and that that was a good place to be. But in this moment, holy discontent broke through and things were changed for the better. God did not have them where he wanted them. God had other plans in mind. And he used their discontent to shake the entirety of a cultural system, to expose unjust beliefs and laws of the time. The prevailing cultural attitude toward the place and role of women was not part of God's intention. And we see prophetic voices and challenging stories like this one in Numbers expose this reality time and time and time again in Scripture. Dr. Brenda Bacon says this, In sum, in the ideal world which God created, equal justice for men and women would be the norm. Thus, it was clear to the five women that the decision-makers, Moses, Eliza, and the tribe chieftains were not acting according to the command of imitating God's merciful qualities in their distribution of land. There are many things in our lives and in our world that are broken, things which we should not accept nor be satisfied with. And so in this way, our topic this morning is a bit more complex than just being okay with the place that you're at in life, because there are times you shouldn't be okay. You see, contentment is a posture born from a deep inner listening to and a deep trust in God. An inner listening and a trust so much so that you will live out your life faithful to the call of Christ, knowing that sometimes God will move in such a way that our discontent should manifest itself in pursuing an opportunity for our own growth or becoming the voice for the voiceless. And so, let's ask ourselves a few more questions when looking at contentment on this side of the coin. Again, take a photo if you would like. They should be up on the screen. These questions maybe help you, again, 
into a place of self-reflection or introspection to ask the question, are there places of holy discontent in my life that I have not given voice to, that I have not been willing to listen? And if so, could God be moving in that way? In Jeremiah Burroughs' classic work, he defines contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment as the process of submitting to and delighting at what God would have for you seems to provide the necessary latitude for us to understand both sides of the coin. That sometimes submitting and delighting will look like living a countercultural life in a world that's drunk on power and materialism. And that other times, submitting and delighting might mean you allow for your discontent to lead to the necessary change in your life or in your world around. Now, for some this morning, you're here, and this is maybe what you need to hear. You found yourselves running on a treadmill of consumerism, a treadmill of success, You have used the amassment of stuff and money and status as the very things that prop up your happiness and value. You need the first part of my message. You might need to hear that there is a way of life that can free you from this frantic reality. You might need to hear that what you are chasing will never be found in a job promotion or a faster car or more clothes in your closet, that it can only be found in the sweet acceptance of God's grace in a belief in the unconditional love of Christ and perhaps a practice of simplicity in how you live. For others, maybe you need the second part. Maybe you have veiled your apathy and passivity toward, toward, the, word, or toward the world with contentment. Convincing yourself that where God has you is just fine and to seek change would be wrong. You've become accustomed to a life that you have managed to control, comfortable in the security and predictable outcomes. Meanwhile, you've shirked your responsibility to pursue growth, to seek change, to stand up to injustices. You see, complacency is not the same thing as contentment. Listen closely to your discontent and be willing to submit to what God might have for you. What I love about a topic like this one is there's not a singular answer, right? There's nothing, uh, no applicable point that I can give to say, hey, do this and this will happen. This type of message, this type of topic, the idea of contentment actually requires deep introspection. It requires thoughtfulness and to listening to the Spirit. It's actually an opportunity to involve the community and vulnerably ask of those people around you, hey, is my lifestyle influenced by more and bigger and better and new things? Is that what you see in me? Or maybe it's an opportunity to ask those in your world, hey, are there areas of growth in my life or places of injustice that I have allowed complacency to mask. 
But that takes an incredibly mature and vulnerable person. I believe those are the types of people that we can be. There is a movement, I believe, for all of us to seek greater contentment in our lives while at the same time an ability to listen, an ability to allow holy discontent to boldly lead and change. How these things can and should be pursued as part of the ongoing beauty of a life given to consistent submission and delight to the one who is worthy. Let me close with this. This message is the final in our Hidden Life series. So let me encourage you one last time to do the small and the little things well. Now, you may have moments, you may have opportunities to do something amazing, but most of our lives are spent in the mundane. And these are the moments that we can faithfully serve our King and live beautiful lives. Amen.